Rolf Potts is the author of several books, including Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel. This is Rolf Potts. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Rolf Potts. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. Uh, so you're a guy who's very famous for traveling around, writing about it. Uh, you wrote a very famous book called Vagabonding, among others. Um, and you just told me before we started this call that you're in Kansas right now. I know you kind of put down roots there a little bit, but are, have you been doing any traveling at all recently? Not beyond road trips uh, based out of Kansas. Um, so this is a strange situation where I haven't flown in almost two years. Wow. Um and so I've been more, I mean, I've been to New York and other parts of the U.S. in the last couple of years. But um, as far as international travel, this is probably the least I've traveled in 20 or 30 years. And, and I mean, obviously COVID is going on, but there are opportunities for people to go outside of the country if you're vaccinated or even in some places if you're not vaccinated, you just get a, get a PCR test. Is this a, a conscious decision you're making to, to not leave the country or what's behind this? It is, you know, I just finished my fifth book. Um, it, it took about seven or eight months to write um, travel. Given the intensity of writing that book, uh, travel didn't make sense during that time. Uh, I also uh, met my wife and got married during the pandemic. It's a strange meet cute story that we literally both met each other in Kansas during the pandemic. And while my travel in the US has mostly been with her, um, I haven't been that ambitious about international travel, in part because I know I'll be traveling with her internationally no. when it becomes a little bit easier to do so. But it, there's a real pleasure in just being close to home with someone you love and uh, sort of doing some, some less ambitious vagabonding. An, an example, though, is that she and I decided we were just going to walk out our back door and, and see how long it would take us to get to this little town called Little Sweden. It, uh, it took us seven hours. We walked 22 miles together uh, uh, last year. So I think that this has been a fun lesson for me in the more close to home vagabonding that can be done. Like taking that attitude of adventure towards your own home has been fun to rediscover in the last year or two. Uh, well, congratulations on the marriage. Uh, I'm curious, uh, because one of the things uh, I've been kind of sort of in the opposite wavelength as you, I've been on the road for the past two years. And prior to that, I hadn't really been doing much traveling at all. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that it's, it's quite hard to uh, maintain a relationship when you're going from place to place, or even if you're in somewhere for like a year where it's sort of expected that you're going to leave at some point. Um, do you feel like this getting married would have been possible if you had been on the road? That's a good question. And actually, you know, my wife who should have been in Berlin when we met, I should have been off in Italy when we met, um, we speculated about where else, we're both from Kansas, where else we might've met and how that would have worked and how that chemistry would have worked had we had a long-term, like an international long-term relationship instead of the, the COVID Kansas relationship that we'd had. And, it, and it's hard to answer. I think it's subjective, you know, that there's some situations. I think all of us who've traveled long-term have tried to make long-term relationships work. I've known people who have had long-term relationships work, but sometimes that's a matter of making sacrifices to make the long-term relationship work. As an aside, I've been reading uh, Dave Grohl's memoir, the Dave Grohl, the Nirvana Foo Fighters uh, drummer and musician. And he talks about making the transition to balance his rock career with family once he has children. And while I'm childless, I think 
hardcore travelers also sort of have to strike a balance that I was a really hardcore solo traveler in my twenties and thirties and a little bit in my forties. But I think to be a coupled person, to have a partnership with someone, even if they're a long distance, you have to make those sacrifices. You can't just follow your own passions in any given moment. You have to sort of sacrifice some of that independence to be partnered with someone. And it took me, for, I was a bachelor forever. It took me forever to, to meet my person. Um, so it's easy for me to say, yeah, it's, I can make the sacrifice. Now, a younger person, it may have been harder for me to make those sacrifices, right. but I think your travel career changes over time that you may start with a mindset of travel. And then as you become older in life, the things that are important to you as a traveler in your twenties or thirties become less important to you. Um, as you deepen into your travel career. Well, yeah, and, and it's curious because I, I was listening um, before we talked now to this conversation uh, a couple of days ago with these, these hunter-gatherers and they were being asked, um, one of the concepts that was introduced to them was this concept of travel or tourism. And they just had no like word for that. And it was sort of being explained to them and they're like, okay, so you go to these like foreign countries, but like, you know, people there, right? Like you're going to like visit like friends or family and people were just like, no. They're like, well, why would you do that? Like, and it seems kind of almost like a natural question to be like, okay, you're flitting about from place to place. People have been nomadic in the past, but when they were being nomadic, they were doing it in groups. Um, and as an individual, I mean, do you, do you see any long-term cost to like not putting down roots for, I mean, it, it, in your case, I guess you were traveling around for decades. Yes. Um, you know, we have this term now, digital nomadism, which really became a more mainstream term since I wrote Vagabonding. Yeah. Um, and I think in its own way, uh, Vagabonding has influenced that movement. But uh, now this is a part of the conversation. Like it used to be nomadism was literally entire families would move around from season to season, often with their herd animals. This is, this is as many as 10,000 years ago. And so the new model of of nomadism is a little bit different. It's more of an individualized thing. And I think it can become difficult. And I think a lot of the digital nomads I've talked to recently are young people. And so they have very, what can be called first half of life priorities. And I think that's important because in the first half of life, it's all about becoming. It's about seeing your own potential, pushing yourself, trying new things, making yourself vulnerable and uncomfortable. But that has diminishing returns after a time. You can't be, well, you can be the, you know, the 60 year old, 70 year old, 80 year old wandering the earth. But I think your happiness can be tied to certain kinds of commitment, not just to always being unattached from things. And so I got this land here in Kansas where I'm talking to you now, um, 16 years ago. Uh, and so I have sort of been a digital nomad, not in an exotic place like, you know, the Yucatan Peninsula or, at former Soviet Georgia, I've been a digital nomad out of a very inexpensive part of the United States. And over time, as my parents have gotten older, they were very close to me. As I met my wife, I've realized that my happiness lies less in constant travel and more in honoring the commitments to the community and the family that I have. And so we live, I'm not sure where the hunter-gatherers you talked to were from, uh, but it's interesting. There's uh, hunter-gatherers in Central Australia, when uh, tourists started to show up in the mid-20th century, were really confused because they thought that somehow it was the job of these aging European people to take pictures and ask and argue about how much everything costs, right? And so just the idea that you are traveling separate from your ver very central way of being was confusing to them. 
Uh, and so I think, yeah, I, I, it's a very, this individualistic idea is a very Western idea. And I think it manifests when we're very young and, you know, I very, I very, I, I idealized my own independence and my own individualism when I was younger. But I think over time, um, that becomes inseparable from you get to know the world and then you get to know what is important to you and what communities are important to you and what causes and things are important to you. And over time, you make commitments, be it to people or places or communities that deepen your life in a way that travel can inform but is not exclusive to. Yes, and I would also just sort of on that note, um, have you ever thought about the fact that there's a weird nature to this travel where if everybody was doing this, then the travel experience would be terrible because there would be no locals. You know, everyone would be on the road. Um, and so there's something to it where like in order for traveling to be as like meaningful or deep as it is, it, it by definition can include everybody. Um, does that, uh, does that set off any, um, not alarm bells, but does that give you pause at all? Well, this is something I talk about in, in my new book, the idea that we travel in this web of hospitality, this guest host relationship. And if we don't come home and honor the host side of that guest host relationship, then, um, then we are sort of selling your travel experiences short. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to start a youth hostel or take right. in every indigent person they see. But I think, again, I, I think it's strange for someone to start wandering the earth when they're in their 20s and still be wandering the earth in the same way when they're in their 50s or 60s. I think at a certain point, there's lessons that you learn and internalize and take home because there's so much generosity and just human depth and complexity that comes out of that guest host relationship. Um, and I think there's so much to learn even from in hunter gatherer communities or, you know, even in hyper industrialized communities that basically people express a part of themselves when they're at home. And if you don't reestablish a home relationship, be it in your home state, like I did, or if it, you know, is putting down roots in a part of Asia or a part of Europe or a different part of uh, your home country, in my case, the United States, then, then, you're only sort of a half traveler. You've gone out and gotten the fun parts of it. You've, you've taken advantage of people's hospitality, but you haven't come back and thought about what do I have to give to my own community? What do I have to reach out to people who are themselves travelers? Um, and now that I'm no longer a young person, how can I maybe host or reach out or shepherd some younger people in their journey too? Because I think so much of, obviously not everybody who travels is young and I'm, I'm no longer young myself, but is the idea that I think the reason why travel is so special when you are young is that there's so much to learn. You know, it's, it's better than university if you allow yourself uh, access to that. Yet at the same time, um, I think coming back home, setting down roots at some point is an important thing. Uh, and you mentioned your book, uh, Vagabonding, and the influence it had on, on digital nomads. Um, one of the things I really like in that book is, and this occurs like very early on in the book, you're talking about... Um, some quote from Charlie Sheen, uh, his character in Wall Street, where he's like, man, I just want to make enough money to, by the time I'm 30, I can get on a motorcycle and drive around China. And your point was like, like, dude, you can work as like a dishwasher for eight months and be able to do that. Um, that question still seems to persist in people's minds of like, you know, what, what then? You know, okay, I'll travel for a year, but what happens after that? Won't I be left behind and won't this, you know, 
disrupt my life in a potentially fatal way. Um, how do you respond to people with those concerns? Well, those concerns used to be a lot more intensified. When vagabonding first came out, this is before, um, before there was a term digital nomadism as we know it now. <clears throat> um, it was also before Skype and other technologies that allow us to sort of be remote workers. Uh, they're like, you say to put your travel experience on your resume, how can I do that? You know, that seems weird. Well, by the late 20 aughts, um, The Economist magazine was literally saying that young people um, are more employable if they have travel experience, that travel literally makes them more employable. And all of the nervous emails that I got from readers in the mid aughts had sort of gone away by the late aughts just because suddenly you could do your you know, graphic design work from Brazil instead of Sacramento. And the idea that you could take a career on the road was more normalized. Now there's disadvantages that I've met digital nomads, air quotes, digital nomads who haven't even gone backpacking first. They, they fly straight to Bogota, Colombia, or to, um, you know, Azerbaijan or wherever, and just start working. I think understanding the context of your digital nomadism is important and just open to travel is, is a, is a big part of that. Um, but now as much as ever, you know, especially, you know, post pandemic digital work age that even people who want to work in an office can't, and they're finding ways to work in different way. And so that anxiety, which I've seen firsthand for almost 20 years now keeps receding because the assumptions of employment are different. You know, even when I was young, the idea that you get a job and you work it in your entire life and you retire and get a plaque on your wall. That's like an old 1950s, 1960s idea. I think employability has been more and more mobile for better and for worse. And as much as ever, it's about reinventing yourself every few years. And as a writer, that has really happened. Like the glossy magazines I dreamed of, of writing for 20 years ago don't even exist anymore. Right. And so I've had to reinvent myself as a writer. And it's not just writers who have to do that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's everybody, you know, we, we the, the world keeps changing and we have to change with it. Uh, what do you mean when you say people, they fly to like Bogota and they haven't even gone backpacking yet? You mean what exactly? Well, this is something I've seen mostly through media. I, I run into people this way, basically is that digital nomadism sounds great. Um, and now you can go to a compound in Bali uh, or in, Thailand that has been designed for digital nomads mm -hmm. that you can go and there's other people from California or Connecticut or South Dakota there. Um, there's also people from Belgium and Israel there. And you go into this work community in say Colombia, and suddenly you're doing the same work that you were doing in California, but you have, you haven't had a pretext to really know where you are. You haven't spent time in the jungle or in hostels. You haven't learned much Spanish yet for Colombia specifically that basically you don't, you, besides the fact that you're at this digital nomad compound with all these cool, young, beautiful people, you're not sure why you're in Bali or, or Colombia, that you, you're, you're sort of there because now it's a consumer option that you can, you can pay this seemingly advantageous rent to, buy a, to live in a digital nomad compound, but you don't have to spend months traveling first. And sometimes when I talk to digital nomad um, audiences and digital nomads are a very dynamic bunch, I just want to say, look, when I vote vagabonding, there was no term digital nomadism. 
but there was no compound either. So I just went and I found my own place to stay in Thailand. That's where I wrote Vagabonding. I found my own relationships there. And in a sense, you don't need a middleman. You don't need that compound full of Israelis, Californians, and Norwegians to work with in Bali. You can go to some podunk town, um, you know, in Uzbekistan or Bolivia or wherever, find an apartment, meet some local people. And in a way that's that's a more in-depth travel experience. You're going to be learning more if you have to hustle your own lodging, if you have to do your own shopping, and you can't just in a moment of loneliness turn to the person from Dusseldorf beside you and have a conversation in English, right? So those old challenges that before there was a digital nomad culture, which again, it makes it easier for people. But again, those challenges were part of what made it special to move overseas because you had to do the work of learning a little bit of language, learning where to get groceries, learning how to, where a place to stay was and all that stuff. Learning how to get good internet before you clicked in. Well, now it makes sense. It's a consumer thing. People are looking for something with English speaking people, good internet connections, a, a beach nearby, hiking nearby. And that's great, but it also takes away those challenges that made that experience special. Yeah, and, and you say the, the consumer aspect of it, and that sort of reminds me of um, uh, a piece you have, uh, I think it was one of the sort of pieces that sort of put you on the map uh, as a writer, uh, Storming the Beach, where you have this sort of conversation about the distinction between being a tourist and traveler. And a lot of people like to make that d distinction and claim that, oh, I'm a traveler. Um, but you kind of point out that really the line between the two is quite blurred because it's ultimately a consumerist experience. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's, you know, that tourist traveler distinction, I mean, it has a huge history. It goes into the idea that the people who traveled in Europe were rich people in the, in the 1700s. And suddenly Thomas Cook invented, he used the railroads to bring middle-class people into Europe and the upper-class people complained about the tourists. They were on a tour. They complained about the tourists because they were lower class people. And so this distinction has gone back a long way, but we still use this nomenclature. In fact, I, in vagabonding and, and in storming the beach, but also in vagabonding, I downplay the tourist traveler distinction. Yet to this day, people come up and say, yeah, I like your book. It's about how to be a traveler, not a tourist. And it's like, people love that distinction. They want to think that they're doing something better than somebody else. But being a traveler, it's a liminal experience. By definition, you're an outsider in communities that are not yours. And so it's soothing to think, oh, well, I'm a better tourist. So therefore I'm a traveler, which is sort of an A plus version of a tourist. When in fact, sure, maybe the tourists are, are riding on buses and they're gone after a couple of weeks. But just because you're in a place for a month doesn't mean you're not a visitor anymore. And so basically it's just, I'm, I'm trying to get people to be a little bit more humble because when you think about travelers versus tourists, you're comparing yourself to your fellow travelers when at best you are comparing yourself to the place you are. You're having an interactive relationship with a culture that, that in some ways makes no sense at all. And you, you have to be willing to make mistakes and be a fool sometimes um, to learn what that place has to offer you. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting, the fact that it has like a class-based origin, because it does feel like there's kind of a snobbish element among some travelers I've met of like sort of dropping, almost like name dropping the countries that you've been and like, oh, well, yeah, you, you know, Europe is easy, but I've been, you know, here in South America and done this and oh, these people, they're, you know, they're such newbies, basically. Um and the humility aspect is 
it, it did you find that that was something that um, you like picked up right away or were you so sort of almost like giving advice to your former self and you know humility was something you learned as you went well it's funny to hear you say that because that's exactly the discourse as it happened i suspect you're a lot younger than me remind me how old you are i'm 27 27 yeah so when I was 27, when I was literally 27, the exact th same things were happening. Now, it was a little bit more on my radar because the book and the movie The Beach came out, which is tied into my essay, Storming the Beach. And that is very much about the pretensions that travelers flaunt with each other, you know, that when they, uh, when like those travelers aren't really look, were that worried about Thai culture, unless it's drinking snake's blood, they're mainly trying to be better than the other people who are also a couple of months out of their European or North American home. And I've studied the old hippie trail, which is the generation before me enough to know that there was all sorts of pretensions and snobberies going on there as well. Um, and so, and then just there's all, there's all these ways that it manifests. It's, it's not just class, but it's also a little bit of a hipster thing, you know, um, or a little bit, there's ways that we talk in our homes that, that sort of, we're sort of signifying, we're, we're giving these little signals that, oh, well, I'm college educated too, or music I listen to is not mainstream music. It's a little bit different than yours. And so people are using these same, I think I call them nightclub virtues or something in vagabonding, just the idea that we're trying to impress each other. It's, it's a performative thing. We're not really making an inquiry into the place we are. We're protectively trying to be better than the other people around us. Um, and actually a, an anthropologist named Christine Anderskoff about 20 years ago, she studied these travel cultures that, that keep this discourse. It's a, they find it very important to be more traveled, to say, I've been here, here, and here. And she asked them, how much time do you spend with local people? And they say, almost all the time. And she's here, okay, write down when you spoke with local people. Well, it turns out that they actually don't. It's an ideal, so they say they've done it. But basically, if they're, if they're buying stuff from a local person, or if they're sort of observing local people from their beach chair, then they count that as interacting with local people. That basically these super travelers who she met, and some of them are very impressive and have been to a lot of places, they spent most of their time with other travelers, you know? And I think by definition, if you've been to 50 countries in the last five years, well, then you're moving around a lot. How many, how many countries have you really committed yourself to? How many languages have you learned in that time? How many people have you had interesting relationships with? And I'm not gonna knock that because I've, I've traveled fairly fast as well. But it's a different dynamic when you do 10 countries in a month than when you do one country in a month or one country in a year or one country in 10 years. And so those hierarchies, they're nightclub values, really. It's trying to be cool around people that um, you don't know very well and who don't know you very well. When in fact, life itself, that deep interactive process of learning and making mistakes and forming relationships, that's a different thing entirely. That, and the tourist traveler dichotomy has nothing to do with that. And you talk about like learning like the local language and stuff like that. How how uh, fluent in how many languages are you? My that's uh, that's a good gotcha question because I'm fluent in English and that's it. Okay. I I can read and write Hangul, which is the Korean alphabet. Um, I lived in Korea for a couple of years, and it's no mistake that my familiarity with Korea Korean is probably higher than anyone else. If I drink enough soju, I can make some jokes and have some light conversations. And this is after. Is after 20 years, 20 years later, I can, I still know a lot of Korean yeah. and I can still read Korean signs. Um, it's as close as I come to fluency in any one language. Um, my Arabic was decent for a while. My Spanish was decent for a while. 
Um, everything else is fairly superficial. Um, I'm a big, I'm a case in point for being able to learn a few phrases of a language and get around. Yeah. Um, learning numbers, directions, pleasantries. Um, it shows you're trying and that counts for a lot. Yeah, no, totally. I, I remember the, I went to Albania at one point and people, when my first day I was trying to buy some water and I was like, ah, this woman asked me a question in Albanian and I was like, oh, sorry, I don't speak Albanian. She got like legitimately mad. And then hmm. I, I learned, um, just like a couple words. And I came back the next day and I said, uh, follow me Derek, which means thank you. And she was mm -hmm. very like, Oh, like follow me Derek. <laughs> and it was a total change of attitude. Um, it's kind of, I'm, I'm not fluent in any other languages either. So I was definitely not trying to do a, a gotcha question. Um, well, I'll admit that that's a blind spot. I've been everywhere and my languages are, are pretty terrible. Um, but 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 I do admit that, and so people can look to me and think, oh, okay, your your languages are terrible, but you've traveled a lot. But the the, the anecdote that you just gave is a great one. How long does it take to, to memorize "thank you"? The number is one to ten. You know, how do I get a beer? Where's the bathroom? Those kind of phrases you can do on the plane on the way to your destination, on the bus between locations, and that is something. But I hope the new generation of travelers remember you don't you don't have to listen to a podcast or fart around on your smoke phone when you're on the long boring bus to Chiang Mai. You can uh, you can learn Thai. You can see if you can learn some of the Thai script or the Korean script or the Arabic script or whatever wherever you are. Um, and that, that's good for your brain actually. That literally your hypothalamus gets stronger when you are problem solving than when you when you are just passively reading things. And have you noticed by being like in one place in Kansas, have you noticed your, your brain or the way you think changing at all? What do you mean? In other words, like uh, one, uh, I saw one like psychological study, like a, a benefit of traveling is that um, uh, it allows for people to have like more flexibility in terms of like their value structure um, and their openness to other cultures, et cetera. I mean, like basic stuff, but basically, um, uh, that, that people would assume, but it was backed up by, um, you know, data. Um, and, and I was curious if you found, um, probably not, but if there was any sort of, um, not closing off when, when you're in one place, but if you found yourself more, um, uh, your mind being more settled instead of say stretched or something. I think to an extent, yes. I think it's hard to replicate that excitement of travel when you're at home. Um, I'm lucky in that my parents are teachers and teachers are sort of, you know, you sort of, when you're raised by teachers, you're sort of, um, raised to self-educate to a certain extent and ask questions, um, and continue to ask questions. And so oftentimes my most interesting interactions in my home environment, uh, can be about solving mysteries. Why is this town named this way? Um, why does this town only have one business? Um, and actually meeting my wife in Kansas has, has turned us into uh, explorers, you know, that she's, uh, her, in, her skill set, her interests are different than mine. She really, she really likes cooking and, and she's more of a hiker than me. And, and so as a team, we can sort of go out and solve these mysteries in the same way that we might be on the other side of the world, even though we have a language in common, we can just sort of get to know aspects of our home community in an interesting way. An example, I don't know if this is the best example, but for my birthday, my wife knows I love Korean food because I lived in Korea for a while. So she took me to Korean food near Junction City, which is a place in Kansas. Well, it's near Fort Riley. It's near a military base. 
And so the fact that basically we were eating, it was authentic Korean food, but it was obviously cooked for 19 year old soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. So the portions were bigger, the flavors were a little sweeter. And so it was just really interesting to see how this, the, the, the owner of the place was from Busan, which is the same city where I live in Korea, but she had probably through trial and error learned to have big portions of slightly sweeter Korean food. And so it was just interesting to see how certain aspects of my home state, but actually that's not even my home state. It's like those 19 year olds who come off the military base and want a big, big pile of rice. Um, they're from all over the U S you know? And so in a way, yeah, walking around here and going on little road trips has been a fun way to keep travel going. I think you never have the same buzz as you do when, when you're on the other side of the world. Uh, but it's nice to know, and actually the pandemic has underscored how you don't need to be bored at home. You can always walk a few miles in any direction and see something interesting and new. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, your, like yourself as a writer, um, and, and particularly this concept of travel writing where, uh, I, I think you're a very like literary and talented writer. Um, but the concept of travel literature among sort of literary snobs is almost sort of um, considered like a backwater or, or less mm. than, um, which is strange because on some level, someone like Hemingway was a travel writer. You could say that like Proust was, a, or like Bruce Chatwin was a fantastic writer. He was a travel writer. Um, do you feel like there's still this like stigma attached to uh, the concept of travel writing or do you even care? Well, because I'm a travel writer and because I'm interested in travel writer, yeah, of course I care. But I think, I mean, there's a long history of people who start their careers as young travel writers and then they diversify when they get older and then they write an article about how travel writing is dead. It's uncanny. They've been going on for decades that I think people, they come up in travel writing because they're excited about travel. This is also a class thing, actually. I think certain classes, especially in Britain, but also in the United States, who feel that travel is their right as a young person will travel when they're young, write about it, and then move on to their upper class lives back home. Whereas the more middle class association, like some, like I've never really let go of travel. I've never seen that as something that you're supposed to do when you're a young privileged person. I've just seen it as something that is an ongoing interest of mine. And I know enough about travel writing to know that there's a, there's a huge swath of why travel writing is not respected. For years, it was because travel writers were sort of seen as liars. They'd go to the other side of the world and the stories they told were probably not really true. Well, there's an extent to which that was market driven, that people liked stories about monsters and griffins and mermaids better than they like stories about people who are sort of like us, but have different customs. Um, and to fast forward things a bit, of course, that that was tied up in, in empire, the, you know, the British Empire, especially in the 19th century. Then in the 20th century, especially after World War II, it really became as the middle class became stronger, it became a middle-class thing and they wanted consumer information. So this idea that travel writing is just sort of where to go and what to do. Like it's not literary, there's no literary heft because it's just service writing. And so it still has that reputation. Often when people complain about travel writing, it's like, well, this is not true and it's, and it's boring and it's just about where to get a pancake. Well, that's because so many people read commercial travel writing um, and you're probably not really looking for literary travel writing. Uh, to, an, to an extent, it's audience driven. You know, I think Chatwin was appealing in his travel writing because he was appealing as a travel writer. He tied into some really higher ideas like nomadism that made his, his writing interesting. So I think there will always be a consumer aspect to travel writing, which makes it useful, but easy to make fun of because, and that's why you know, we're in the influencer age 
And the most famous influencers are the ones who are like, hey, I'm in an infinity pool in Bali and I'm wearing this watch and I'm drinking this cocktail. Well, it has a huge following, but it's also me it's also easy to make fun of because it's like, yeah, I know that if you turned your camera 90 degrees to the left, there'd be 300 other tourists. Um, So I don't think this conversation is ever going to fully end. And I think at its best travel writing mixes the outward gaze of journalism of reportage with the inward gaze of memoir. And so I think at its best, it can be about a person in another place that they don't know super well, but they're making sense of certain things about themselves as they make sense about certain things of other cultures. Um, I'll always be a fan of travel writing. Um, and I'll always wade through a lot of super mediocre travel writing as I think we're all destined to. No, no. And, and um, I, I'm as well. And it seems like I've, I've heard a little bit about how your stories, how like you've arrived where you are as a writer. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you about is you wrote uh, an entire book, uh, I, I understand, uh, about a road trip you took around America. Um, I think you got to publish like some pieces from it. Um, but tell me if I have this story wrong, but you, you wrote the entire book and then shelved it. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. I, was, I was 23 when I took that trip. Um, I'd always been praised for my writing in the school newspaper or whatever. So I thought, okay, this is where I write a book about it. I actually didn't write the entire book. I probably wrote 50 to 70% of it. Uh, and then I realized that you have to write it for an audience. I just, it was my grad school that basically I learned all the hard lessons in writing a failed book about my USA travel experience. And I've been to it. I've been back to it recently because I did a podcast a few years ago um, about that trip that I took. And so I wrote, wrote through my old journals on my own, uh, my old book chapters from that. And they weren't very good, but it, it's good to acknowledge that the fact that those weren't good made me a better writer later on. And I got some good advice and it's weird to hear, but my high school English teacher gave me some great advice. I co-dedicated vagabonding to him because he gave me such good, realistic advice. It wasn't like, oh yeah, this is good. It was like, no, this doesn't work. And this is why. Um, and if you fail, then um, you know what, what does failure have to teach you? I mean, that was so important to learn. It wasn't an all or none thing. It's that the writing I was doing when I was 24, 25 was not there yet. So that by the time I was 27, 28, I could write Storming the Beach. You know, I could get the vagabonding contract and go from there. And so, yeah, no, it, it was, it was such an interesting process. And I, and I went through a lot of low emotional moments, sort of a mid twenties crisis when that book went nowhere. And in retrospect, all these years later, uh, I understand why it didn't go nowhere. It wasn't a very good book. It would have been a good book to show to my friends. It probably had too many inside jokes. Um, it really didn't teach the reader anything. It didn't take them through my emotional experiences. It was all the hard lessons that I, now when I teach writing, I try to teach to my students. Um, just the idea that what is on the page is what your reader has, regardless of how many good jokes you have and how charming you are and how well-meaning you are, unless it's all there on the page for them to have the same emotional informational experience as you, then um, it's not there yet. So yeah, that was, it was a failure that really depressed me at the time, but it was so important to my career. I mean, part of the reason why I'm asking is because I'm I'm someone who's written a few drafts of a novel that I still, uh, I, I am, I I feel like the right thing to do would be to just abandon it, um, but it is very hard to abandon something that you've put a lot of effort into, um, and and you spoke a little bit about that. But at what point were you able to just say, okay, I've got to take a step back and just leave this thing alone? 
Well, it was my, it was um, John Ferdinand was my high school English teacher who was looking at it and was just being honest about it. Um, and if it bored the shit out of him, he'd tell me, bored, this bores the shit out of me. But he said, he said it in a, in, in a gentle way. He was an old Korean war vet, very tough, very no nonsense. Um, that sometimes the purpose of a project is to set it aside and learn what you've learned from it. He gave me permission, basically. He, he saved me a lot of time of banging my head up against that. He gave me permission to let go of that project and move on. And as you mentioned before, some of my earliest uh, stories for Salon, when Salon was publishing good travel stuff, were chapters from that book. I wrote, a, I used my Las Vegas chapters, my very first byline in a national publication, um, where basically I took out the chapter about Las Vegas and sleeping in a van in a parking lot in Las Vegas and you know gambling the $5 I had to gamble. And I turned it into a, you know, a 1700 word story from the 4,000 word chapter it was, and it was, it was published. And so that was a good thing too. It showed me that I was doing well, even though as a package, that book wasn't working, parts of it were. And um, yeah, it's, it's not even something I can prescribe. I mean, people spend tens of thousands of dollars going to grad school and probably get good advice there, but right. for free failure was, wasn't my best professor. Um, the failure and then just having some important people in my life saying, good, you know, this is a failure. Yeah. But learn from it and, and, and move on, go travel some more, go write some more. Um, and, and you spoke about that sort of balance between uh, service as a travel writer and also like the story. Um, I'm conscious of that too, uh, as a podcaster. So one thing I want to ask you as sort of a service question to the listener, uh, if they wanted to embark on some kind of long-term travel, not necessarily lifelong, but say, you know, more than a couple of weeks, a month, a year, what would, what do you think is the easiest way to do that? Well, decide it's going to happen, even if you don't know exactly how it's done yet, because it can happen. And it doesn't matter who you are. You know, you could be a, a working class guy who lives in Indiana or a person at the end of a long academic career in Pennsylvania and you're 70 years old. It, when you decide it's going to happen, it will happen. You can figure out the rest later. Um, there's a little a little bit involved in saving money. There's also a bit involved in figuring out where you want to go. And I've always said that usually you show up where you are and then you figure out what you're, why you're there. But having a sense for, oh, I like warm weather when it's cold in January where I live, maybe I will go to Costa Rica or Thailand or Egypt. And then sort of building, basically once you decide to go and then as you get more details about what the journey looks like, the journey has started in a way. And suddenly, say, if you go into Egypt, suddenly you're reading about Egypt in a way that's really exciting. And um, it builds into the enthusiasm. Even at home, it makes you a, a happier person. And actually, scientists have studied that anticipation for experience-related purchases specifically brings more satisfaction than anticipation of, you know, basically standing in line to buy an airplane ticket brings you more happiness than standing in line to buy a motorcycle, right? Mm -hmm. um, that investing your life into experiences is great because the experience starts once you start to anticipate it, once you start to imagine it. Um, another, another thing besides weather is keeping in mind where, where you can afford to go. Um, it's very normal in the United States for young people to head towards Europe because there's an old historical relationship to Europe. I couldn't afford Europe when I was in my 20s, so I traveled in Asia. It was much more affordable. You know, I could ride trains for a month in India, whereas if I tried to ride trains around Europe, that money would have lasted a week, not a month. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. If you feel like you're poor, we'll think, well, where can that dollar go a little bit further? 
there's a ton of places, including Albania, actually, where that dollar can go further. And so just think about the factors that might limit you and figure out ways to get around those factors. If you're a person who gets lonely easily, think about, do I have a friend to travel with? Um, yeah. Um, settle your debts, uh, pay, pay your bills, uh, find somebody to, to take care of your pets or your apartment and then make it happen eventually. Because really, you really, yeah, once you start to dream about it, it happens. And that's an exciting thing to keep in mind. I, I still think the biggest concern that people have, and it's kind of amazing where I, I, I took like a, a year off, like a year sabbatical for my previous job. Now I'm working remotely. Um, but a lot of people who, this is when I was 24 and I made this decision, I guess. Um, and a lot of people my age at that time were very concerned about like, like, oh, I would love to do that. But if I take a year off or a few months off, I'm going to get behind forever. Or like what happens afterwards? Like you mentioned like having travel on your resume and things like that. Um, but it, there is... Um, like an element of the rat race that I think has kind of picked up um, over the past few decades where if you're in school, you have to have an internship. And, you know, if you don't have an internship, how are you going to get a job afterwards? And like some of these fears are illusory, um, but some of them I think are slightly legitimate. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I don't think that's anything new. Yeah. Um, that has always been a thing. And it's, that's a very American thing too. We don't have a culture of travel for young people. There's, there's no, we don't have a gap year culture um, or Hundu jar in, in, in Germany. We don't have this idea that travel is goes hand in hand with being young. Um, I think it's legitimate if you play the game, if, if you're playing the game as it's presented to you. And so I know if people who've done their major, they've done the internships, they've, they've done the work. Suddenly they're making six figures. They're 26 years old. They're a financial consultant in New York and they, they live the worst life ever. They, they just hate it, right? So I think one thing to keep in mind is, sure, there, there's this sort of competitive superstructure of how you're supposed to do things, um, but in whose interest is that? And where does your happiness lie? And will you ever get your 20s back? I've always told people to don't be afraid to waste your 20s because in a way you don't waste your 20s and that nobody really cares what internships you had. Like nobody's ever asked me. I've never, I don't have traditional employment, yeah. but I think that is to use an, a word that I don't know if it's used very much anymore. It's peer pressure. If you're around people who are really concerned about internships and resumes and getting that step into the business, then suddenly that becomes real in a way that isn't. Whereas if you take your skill set, be it as a graphic designer or a truck driver to the other side of the world, and suddenly you're learning more things, you're learning just the economies and the language and the cultures of other places, then suddenly you're back. You Maybe you're a couple of years older than the other applicants for the job you like, but suddenly you have this like, Really? You run a you run a language course in um, in Turkey. You know you speak Turkish. Uh, suddenly, and this is something I've been saying for twenty years. If you don't, if you're not a dumbass, like if you're not just spending your whole time like on the business end of a bong on a beach someplace, and even if you are, and you're gonna you're gonna exaggerate it, that basically if you treat travel as your real education, that's like 10 times more fun than college, then you can not only find a way to put it on your resume, but you can find a way to put it in your life. You know, that, that basically you're going to follow your interests, whatever they are. And I have a good example, actually. Um, my friend, Dan was a, a, he was a raft guide in Arizona. He was a young guy. I think he was 24. I met him in Egypt and we're hanging out with this guy, Paul. He's a few years older than us. He was uh, a city planner in San Diego. 
Dan didn't know anything about city planning, but he was really interested in that. And basically, Dan would just explain the basics of how when you go into a city, even if it's thousands of years old, it's been designed in some way. So Dan traveled for the next eight months, sort of looking at cities in a new way, joined the Peace Corps, told him he was a city planner. And they're okay, whatever. He got into a community development job. Now he works for the city of Wellington in New Zealand as it is in disaster preparedness. That basically a, a conversation in a hostel kitchen in Egypt changed his life yeah. because he was open to learning from his travel experience because talking to a guy from California made him realize, wait a second. Yeah. Cities are designed. And suddenly in a way that no internship could have done, he joined the Peace Corps sort of knowing a ton about city planning because he had decided to internalize that part of it. Knowing Dan, he also had a lot of fun. He, he didn't stop him from partying as much as he did. It's just that during the day when he was walking around, he was suddenly seeing cities in, in a whole new vernacular. And that's just one example. I think that basically anything that you're passionate about, um, you can, you can um, fold right into your travel experience in a way that makes you as employable as ever. Totally. And w one other thing I wanted to ask you about um, when, when you were describing the um, sort of like the first steps to get this ball rolling, the, the loneliness factor. Um, I mean, you're married now. And so if you go on the road, I guess you'll, you'll have someone with you. Um, but prior to that, how did you manage the loneliness? Cause it, it, it's not like, it, I mean, unless you're just a total sociopath, you, you're going to experience it at some point. Absolutely. And loneliness is good for you. Um, loneliness is, is actually harder to find in some ways because you have that phone in your pocket and you can text home. You can text your friends. If you're feeling super lonely one day, I, I will say getting lonely, lost and bored is something you need to remind yourself that it's good to have sometimes. I think personally, I am a little bit of a loner. I'm, a, I'm, I'm solitude works for me. Um, I can feel solitude without feeling loneliness. Also being alone on the road makes me more interactive with the people who live in the places I am. I think if I'm, traveling with a pack of friends, it's about the friends and I'm not as open to the people who live in a place. Um, but I'm an introvert and I am, I have dear friends who just are going crazy after two days alone in another country and they yeah. need a travel companion or something to do. Right. And so I'm not saying that there's a one size fits all way to counteract loneliness, but if loneliness is an issue and, and really in a way, I didn't, I didn't realize I was lonely until I met my wife. And it's like, oh my God, this is fun. Um, I can do everything with this person. This is amazing. Uh, and that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration. I, I dated, I had plenty of interesting relationships over the years. But when you find someone you really click with, even if you're an introvert and a loner, then it's suddenly like, who wants to be an, an introvert and a loner? I can travel with this awesome person. Yet, if you're more of an extrovert, if, you, if loneliness gets to you, it's just a matter of creating more structure. It's like when you go into a city, maybe you'll start with a cooking class in Thailand. Maybe you'll do some martial arts, or maybe you will go on a formal tour, or you will go to a museum and ask to interview the curator about something. That basically you're just creating these little pretexts to create little social environments. Or you'll go to, you'll go to the hostel and sit in the lobby until somebody talks to you. Um, or you'll go to some sort of meetup style uh, internet thing and you find the club in you know, the city of Bogota that loves volleyball or whatever, you know, that, that literally you don't have to be sort of a wander the streets loner like I am, that you can find ways to get a little toehold on a social life. And if nothing else, you have company for a few days while you're going through that phase of culture shock and missing home and stuff. And you have some structure to structure your days and then you can go wander the streets a little bit. I have found that I'm, I'm rarely alone for that long. 
especially in countries in the developing world, if they see sort of a, a big, awkward American guy wandering around, they want to know what's happening. You know, they want to ask him what's happening. And um, it's led to a lot of fun conversations and relationships. Um, so you're in Kansas now. You're married. Um, you're, you're sort of, as you said, um, you, you have a different relationship to travel than you did when you were in your 20s and 30s. And you have um, a section in Vagabonding about reintegrating back into ordinary life when you, when you come off the road. Um, I, personally, I found that uh, slightly difficult, um, huh. or, or at least staying in one spot. Um, sort of like the itch to leave the country um, develops quite quickly. What are, your, um, what are your thoughts there? I mean, do you, is this something that... Um, it, it seems like it took many years for you to decide, okay, I want to find a place in Kansas and sort of build a nest here. Um, are, are you, do you feel reintegrated into ordinary life? Um, or what has that process been like for you? Not properly, but you know, I'm a writer. My, my wife is an actress. We have sort of jobs that take us different places and are not sort of punch your ticket type jobs um, to begin with. I think it's a person by person thing. Some people can, I thought I would scratch my travel itch when I was 23. I didn't, I'm still traveling. Um, and, and it, it manifests at different times at different points in your life. Uh, and so I think some people are perfectly happy to re reintegrate back in their home. You know, one reason I came back to Kansas is that my family is here, not just my parents who live nearby, but my sister and her family lives nearby. That's a travel lesson I learned that just how important travel is all over the world. We're very individualist in the United States, but people make life decisions based on family and, and proximity and they help each other out financially and otherwise. And so I've done that for for 15 years now that I've actually shared some expenses um, with my sister's family in particular, when they're a little bit lean, uh, I help them out. When I'm a little bit lean, they help me out. And so it's not just geography, but it's the relationships that took me back to Kansas that made this home. Uh, and so in a way it was sort of easy for me because I had, I didn't just have a place in Kansas that I could leave for eight months at a time. I had people nearby who could keep an eye on it and I could come back to, and they'd say, welcome home, how you doing? And it was less lonely, I guess. Um, that's not going to apply to everybody. Not everybody's going to have a, a family compound of sorts in an inexpensive Midwestern state. Um, and so it's a person by person thing. I think if you travel the world and fall in love with travel and come home and you're angsty, give yourself a little bit of time. And if you're still angsty, start traveling again, you know, especially the younger you are. Although I've met plenty of uh, older people who are finally kicking their travel dreams in later in life. Um, and just remember there is no, set of rules necessarily. I think you have to act in your best interest and not be impulsive about things. But just because your neighbor says, you need to settle down, you need this internship, you need a job with a regular paycheck, do you? You know, how, what, what do you really need? And again, you don't want to, you know, sponge off the people who love you. You know, you, you right. want to become part of a community that you can give back to. You don't just want to be the loner who's always taking hospitality and not giving it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's okay to give yourself permission to go back on the road again and again and again, because I did. And now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a happily married guy who's living at home uh, or living near home. And uh, well, I guess this is my home now, especially now that I'm married. Um, 
Yeah. So, so I guess there's, that's not something to get angsty over that if, if you come home and you're still feeling wanderlust and you can do it financially and logistically go back out. There's, there, there's no rules that you aren't in control of. Um, I think that's perhaps a good note to end it on. Um, but before we go, Ralph, uh, you have written a new book. Do you, do you have any uh, news with regarding that? Can people pre-order or uh, when can we expect that? The book publishing process has huge lag time. It's going to come out next October. So I probably won't even talk about it in much detail. I want to keep the the idea fresh. I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's probably the most excited I've been a book, about a book since Vagabonding. It's sort of the spiritual sequel to Vagabonding. Keep an eye on my website and my social media feeds. Uh, I'll probably start talking about it, even my podcast, this summer. And it'll come out next fall, probably in October. Um, yeah, and hopefully if you follow Travel at All, It'll be a book that people are talking about it. Um, nice. Yeah, and it covers some of the topics we talked about in this conversation. It's very much about the everything of travel. And you have a website, rolfpots.com. Uh, you're on Twitter. Uh, what's the name of your podcast if people want to check it out? A podcast is called Deviate. Um, it has gone a little bit fallow recently because I've been writing my book for eight months. Yeah. Uh, Deviate... I'm going to have a season in tandem with the book, which will be, if you're not sure about the book, just listen to a few podcast episodes because it's really much going to underpin the book. Um, Rolfpots.com is a great place to start. I'm not always super active on social media. I'm at Rolfpots on Twitter. I don't really like Twitter. Uh, it's a uh, necessary evil sometimes. Um, at Rolfpots at Instagram, that has its place too. But really, uh, Rolfpots.com is probably the best place to look for options in that situation. Excellent. All right, Rolf, thank you very much for your time. You bet. You bet. Thank you to Rolf Potts, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>